how did we let them put us to sleep? We saw them amassing rockets. We saw them training. We saw them crawling in the sand, preparing to invade. We saw them testing rockets. We saw everything happening and we said, no, it's not real. They don't want to attack us. They don't want war. We told ourselves stories. And when you create a narrative, as we know in life, Rabbi, everything then fits into the narrative. So when that's the narrative, when you see some, when you see them then training on the border, you say, no, that's not that because it's that. And when you see them doing something else, you say, no, it's actually something else. That's the, the strategic misconception. This myth is the colossal failure, in my view, of what's happened. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. There are so many questions about where the state of Israel is heading after this war, and so many puzzles about how we ended up in such a precarious position in the first place. Because alongside the awareness of the wonderful unity that we've been experiencing as a people for the past three weeks, we also know that things have to change in the future in order to make sure that we are not again lulled into any false sense of security. I acknowledge that this is not a typical episode of the Orthodox Conundrum. We're dealing with issues facing the entire Jewish people, and specifically the state of Israel. There's nothing orthodox about this per se. That said, the importance of all of us getting accurate and meaningful information is paramount. For that reason, I'm using today's podcast to discuss some of the most important political, military, and social issues that have arisen because of this war. In my opinion, beyond the immediate military objectives that are directly related to the current war, we need to keep two other ideas at the forefront of our minds. First, we need to know as much as we can so that we can be effective advocates for Israel in whatever context such advocacy is needed. In the world today, that means that every person who cares about Israel has to be strong, know the facts, and be ready to present them to people who question the justice of Israel's cause. And as we know, the number of people in that category is rising. And second, when, God willing, the war is over, we need to fix the problems in Israeli society, government, and culture that put Israel in a weakened position in the first place. That's a challenge that the entire Jewish world needs to participate in, Orthodox Jews no less than anybody else. To talk about all of this and more, I was honored to speak with Yaakov Katz. Among the important topics that we addressed are what failures led to the massacre on October 7th, what was Hamas's expectation at the time, whether the protests around judicial reform contributed to the security failures, why it has taken so long for a ground invasion to begin, when to believe the government and when to wonder if they're intentionally trying to mislead Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran, why so many ministers in the government have been unusually quiet for the past three weeks, what the current crisis has in common with the tragedy in Meron two and a half years ago, what may happen with Israel's political system when the war is over, why this moment may present a unique opportunity for change, and more. That's all coming up in just a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. I also have a substack called Orthodox Conundrum Commentary, to which you can subscribe for free. The link is in the description of this podcast. 
A few days ago, I wrote an article there called When God Hides His Face, and I hope it can provide some perspective on what everyone in the Jewish world is facing today. Please also look for the most recent Intimate Judaism episode that Tali Rosenbaum and I recorded. It's episode 51, and it's entitled Love in War, Strengthening Security and Connection Amidst Trauma and Threat. You can find that on IntimateJudaism.com or on your favorite podcast provider. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Yaakov Katz is a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute, a former editor of the Jerusalem Post, where he remains a columnist, and the author of three books on Israeli military affairs, Shadow Strike, Weapon Wizards, and Israel versus Iran. Yaakov Katz, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thank you, Rabbi. We're recording this on Thursday. Last night, we heard Prime Minister Netanyahu talk about what's going to come, talk about how after everything is over, there will be an accounting, but only then. So we don't really know what's going on behind closed doors, but you probably know more than a lot of people. Can you quickly outline some of the more obvious intelligence failures that led to the debacle of October 7th? I look at things as if what happened on October 7th in that massacre is the result of four failures. One of them is strategic and existential. So we'll start with the three smaller ones. Number one, intelligence. Not knowing that 2,500 Hamas terrorists were planning to cross into your border and into your homes and kill your people is a fundamental flaw of any intelligence agency, which now needs to look and see what happened, how did this happen, and what went wrong, right? Now, intelligence mistakes can always happen. You you don't read what you're seeing correctly. You don't analyze it correctly. They could have had very good compartmentalization, not use electronic devices. Probably also what happened was only a few people at the top knew the full picture, and the small fighter at the bottom only knew a little piece of the puzzle to make it harder for Israel to be able to put the pieces together. So there was intelligence. But once intelligence failed, what was supposed to work was the security barrier. That also failed. This was billions of dollars put into this with sensors and physical barriers and walls and and, and remote control guns and, and you name it, collapsed. And then the third failure on that tactical level was the deployment of the IDF. Where were the soldiers? Why did it take so long for troops to get there? And there are reasons, and there's a lot of post- you know, operational inquiries that are going on. For example, when they fired rockets and immediately stormed the border at 6.30 in the morning when people are just waking up and there's a changeover from the overnight shift to the morning shift and the rocket cover forces people into the bomb, into the protective zones inside the frontline bases, that caught people off guard and they were able to use that and they took out some of the cameras with drones. So they, they just had a lot played to their advantage. But that but, and then when 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 you don't know what's happening on the border and they attack the division headquarters, so the commander of the division can't see what's happening. The people in Tel Aviv can't see what's happening. So there's just a complete breakdown in the chain of command. But the, the strategic failure is one that really we need to go deep to understand, I think. And that is, how did we let them put us to sleep? How did we agree for so many years, we saw them amassing rockets, we saw them training, we saw them crawling in the sand, preparing to invade, we saw them 
testing rockets. We saw everything happening and we said, no, it's not real. They don't want to attack us. They don't want war. We told ourselves stories. And when you create a narrative, as we know in life, Rabbi, everything then fits into the narrative. So when that's the narrative, when you see some, when you see them then training on the border, you say, no, that's not that because it's that. And when you see them doing something else, you say, no, it's actually something else. That's the, the strategic misconception. This myth is the colossal failure, in my view, of what's happened. Then let me ask you a question. Perhaps this means the answer is everybody, but I'll ask it anyway. We have both a political class who are elected, and we also have an entrenched bureaucracy, for example, the Shabak, the Mossad, the intelligence services. Do you think, Yaakov, that the blame should be let at one more than the other, or is this across the board a fashla? This is a systemic or systematic failure on every level of our security establishment and our political establishment. By the way, politically, I would say that the government completely needs to go for the simple, not just the negligence that led to this, but what they tried to do here in the eight months, nine months preceding with the judicial reform. And I'm not getting into whether it was right or wrong because it makes no difference right now. But they distracted our country. They made us weak. They projected weakness to the world and, and our enemies took advantage. Our enemies weren't brilliant. They saw weakness, a vulnerability, and they took advantage of it, just like we would take advantage if it happened by them. They saw an opportunity and they grabbed it. But the head of the Shabak, the head of the IDF, the head of military intelligence, the defense minister and the prime minister, in my view, all need to go when this is over. Let me ask you what you said a moment ago about the weakness in Israeli society. Those people who are in favor of judicial reform will say it's not the government's fault. It's the protesters' fault. You just said you're laying the blame at the feet of the government. Now, personally, I'm against judicial reform in the way that it's being done by the government. So I'm not making this point. But to play devil's advocate, I still think that people would say, why would you blame the government? You can blame Israeli society, so to speak, for not being willing to accept legislation that is being proposed by the majority government. You're talking to someone who's who's a proponent of judicial reform. I, for years, was writing before they even brought up these issues, how to change the way we select our Supreme Court justices, how it made no sense that we don't have an override bill, all this stuff. However, the way they did it, to bulldoze it through, to to create this crisis within Israel. By the way, there was a simple way to go about doing it. Do it with a consensus. They, the, the opposition came to the table and said, listen, we'll agree to this. Let's do it together. And they kept on refusing. So, yes, at the end of the day, they are to blame. They they could have paused. They could have tried to do this as a compromise and with a larger consensus of Israeli society. And when they refused to do that, what it showed was an arrogance and a hubris. That is what led to to, you know, people look at. The, the 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 disaster of October seventh, as like the you know 50, almost fifty years to the to the day on the Gregorian calendar, right? One day later, October sixth was when the Yom Kippur War broke out in nineteen seventy three, as the greatest failure since Yom Kippur. And what led up to the Yom Kippur War was also this this hubris from the Six Day War. But we had the same thing in the run up to this. We thought we're invincible; no one can touch us, and we could play games with 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 our democratic system and and let the country rip itself apart. But that, that, that is not acceptable anymore. Now we know that. Yaakov, what do you think that Hamas thought was going to happen? Meaning, is what's happening now, this massive response with 350,000 reservists called up, massing on the border, 
Is this playing into Hamas's hands? Is this what Hamas thought would happen? Or is Israel responding in a stronger way than they anticipated? You know, people thought in the beginning that Hamas got lucky. Hamas was surprised by its own success. People were saying that, you know, it's very similar to what Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, said after after the 2006 war. Had I known that Israel would have responded the way it did, I never would have attacked that convoy and abducted those two IDF reservists. I think that Hamas had this all planned out. And, and, and the evidence also shows that everything was prepared from the, the hostage taking to even we heard the testimony this week of Yocheved Lifshitz, the 85-year-old woman who was taken and returned, of how they were put into the tunnel network, how they had rooms set up, beds set up, uh, uh, everything that women would need, everything that wounded men and women would need, everything was prepared, everything, right? They knew what they were doing, and this was their objective. Now, I think what they think, and they still probably think, is that we don't have what it takes to go into Gaza and to take them down. They think that we're afraid. They think that we're scared to do it. And that is why when we talk so much now lately about the ground invasion and the counteroffensive and what will happen, part of it, yes, is of course we have to weaken and degrade Hamas's capabilities and prevent them from ever being able to do something like this again. But even more so in my view, what makes this existential is not Hamas. What makes it existential for Israel is that we have to project power right now and strength and force because the whole world, not just our enemies, the whole world is watching. And if we fail now, why do we exist? Let me ask you a little bit more about that because there are reports that are coming out, I don't know how accurate they are, that the government is hedging on the full ground invasion with all the goals that it set out on October 7th and 8th and 9th at the very beginning of this because of various reasons, whether it's because they realize that toppling Hamas is not necessarily doable without too high a price in blood, both Israeli and Palestinian, because perhaps they realize it will take too long and world opinion will turn before it will happen, or various other reasons. Do you think that plans are changing and they're trying to climb down from the tree and lower the objectives? Or do you think that toppling Hamas is still what's on the table legitimately? First of all, toppling Hamas, from the day one when they started to say, we need to destroy, eradicate, make it extinct, topple. I don't know what any of that means, right? Those are nice words. But when in practice, what does that mean? Can you destroy a movement? Can you destroy an ideology? Can you, no, you can't. And 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 at the end of the day, you could occupy Gaza for ten years, and there will still be five Hamas guys left. They will say we're still here, right? So this whole concept is is a pot. You know, these are classic pol- political populist remarks, right? What is more realistic to talk about? is a destruction as much as possible of Hamas capabilities to kill and capture as many Hamas fighters as possible, including the top leadership, and to try to create organically, and this is what makes things complicated, organically a new leadership within the Gaza Strip. Because the last thing that we need to do, Scott, is put a put a put uh, uh, some Palestinian on an Israeli tank, drive him into downtown Gaza, and say, this is the new leader, right? We saw how the Americans have done this countless times in places like Iraq or Afghanistan, and it always blows up. You, you don't want to put a puppet in place. So you, how do you do that? I don't know. How can you create an organic way to do that? I don't have a good answer. I think we need the Saudis, the Americans, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, the Palestinian Authority. It's going to be super complicated. But what, what, what I want to urge our listeners, though, to keep in mind is that everything they hear 
They should always think, okay, maybe this is what is actually happening, but maybe it's 180 degrees differently. And actually, then maybe it's actually another 90 degrees different than that. There is a lot of deception in times of conflict like this. And if Israel in the government is working as they should be, then everything that we're hearing here in the public is actually not what's happening. And what's happening only a select few of people actually know about of what the ultimate objective is, what the real plan is, what the real target might be, and they're keeping that very close to their chest. Uh, I've seen this before in books I've written and, and you know stories I've reported on how when, when you look and you get the full story, what you actually discover is that what they're telling you is this, but actually what they're looking at is that. And does that mean, for example, that maybe while we talk a lot about the South, what we're really thinking about is the North? Or when we talk about the North and the South, what we're really talking about, what we're really thinking about is Iran and maybe how they might use this opportunity to break out to a nuclear weapon right now with the whole world distracted. Maybe that's what their whole strategy has always been. And 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 maybe as we as we pretend that we're we're amassing troops to 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 go into Gaza, what we're actually doing something much smaller. I, I don't know, but there's a lot of de- deception is always a big piece of any military campaign. Now, let me ask you, perhaps this is not answerable, but when the government keeps on talking about destroying Hamas, their dead men walking is one term they've used. What would be the reason that they would say that if it's not actually what's going to happen? All that can do is make Israel project weakness by talking big, but failing to follow through. It sounds like that would be the opposite. Right. No, I think there are some parts, of course, all these people will will, will have to die and be killed. And I think that one of the fundamental changes that we're going to see after this, whatever, however this conflict and war ends, one of the fundamental changes will have to be to Israel's national defense doctrine. What I mean by that is when you look at the 75 years of Israel, we've never launched wars as a preemptive action. Now, people argue with me on that point. They say, well, what about the 1956 Sinai campaign? Well, they had closed the Straits of Tehran. That was an act of war. Or they say, what about, you know, the 82 Lebanon war uh, that the, the you know, that we invaded Lebanon. Yeah, but they were firing rockets at us for years and they they attempted an assassination on our ambassador in, in, in the UK. So there was always something that triggered. It wasn't just one day we woke up and said, oh, we're going to attack now Syria because they're amassing chemical weapons. No, we watched them amass chemical weapons. We never attacked. We knew they were for us. We saw all these years Hezbollah and Hamas amass weapons and train, but we never attacked because we said, we'll wait for them to attack us and then we'll attack. I think the fundamental change that will have to come down, no matter how this ends, is because we can't destroy them completely, they will try to rebuild. So for us to retain our defenses, we have to make a shift in our mindset and our national policy and and hold now by a new pillar of preemptive action all the time. We've seen it over the last 10 years in Syria, where there's almost weekly attacks right against Iranian entrenchment. And the reason we've been able to do it in Syria is because there's no stable regime there and less of a fear of a retaliation. We, we we were paralyzed, paralyzed for 17 years against Hezbollah. We saw them go from 20,000 rockets after 2006 to 150,000 rockets day, and we let that happen. Why? We said, no, deterrence, containment, economic incentives, diplomacy. We told ourselves a story. And now we're on the eve of those 150,000 rockets being fired at us. So however this ends, we have to wake up and say, we can't live like this anymore. And we will have to use, in my view, a policy of preemptive action. Now, how does that fit into what you asked? 
these people will have to all be killed no matter where they go and where they are and, and, and however long it takes. Think back to after the Munich massacre, when Israel launched the wrath of God, uh, I think that's what it was called, if I recall correctly, the, the, the Mossad operation that tracked these guys down to capitals in Europe and wherever they were until they got every single last one of the perpetrators of that massacre, the people who carried this out. And here I think that Israel's actually, this I would I, I believe is true. They will hunt these people down and it might take five years, 10 years, 15 years or 20 years, they will get them all. And that's an important message that they also understand. They will never be safe no matter where they go. Okay, I want to ask you, Yaakov, about a tweet that you sent a day or two ago. And this is specifically in response to what you mentioned about that 85-year-old hostage who was released, Yochavi Lifshitz. Here's your tweet. You said, have people lost their minds? An 85-year-old Israeli woman is released from Hamas captivity, dares to say that she received medical care from the terrorists, and political officials think it's okay to criticize her and claim she's undermining Israel's Hasbara efforts? Let's be clear. What's undermining Israel's public diplomacy is that the government is barely functioning, there is no clear messaging, and if it were not for civilian efforts, the campaigns being done would not even exist. People, get it together. Hamas is still holding more than 200 hostages. Find someone else to pick on. So first of all, congratulations. Well said. But I want to ask something about that middle phrase in particular. When you said the government is barely functioning, could you explain what you meant by that? First of all, I'm laughing because it just, it's, <laughs> you read it like I felt at the time. I was angry when I was writing it. And probably that comes off in the, in the tweet. Where, you know, I'm glad that my acting skills are working well. <laughs> no, just, it, I mean, I'm, I'm watching this. Thank God she's releasing, like people are, are pouncing on her. It, it, it's ridiculous. Listen, the government is not functioning. We see that on every level. From the, by the way, I mean, there's Israel is in a financial crisis right now that no one's talking about. You mentioned the 350,000 reservists, right? These are people who are the work for, these are the, the core workforce of our country. So 360,000 people is about 4% of our nation, right? But when you look at how much they make up of the Israeli workforce, it's almost 10% of our workforce, 10%, who are now three weeks in paralyzed. The shekel dollar is at a record high almost, right? People are in huge trouble, huge trouble. Some people are, we're not even talking about that. And where's the finance ministry? I don't know. Where's Vadatak Safim, the, the finance committee? How many how many hearings have they held and committee hearings about what's going on? From what I heard earlier this week, zero, zero. The, the, the only yesterday, finally, did they appoint a, pro, a projector, a project manager for the civilian infrastructure that needs to be rebuilt after there was a huge fight between the director general of the prime minister's office and Betsal Smutrich, the finance minister. Smutrich wanted one guy. The director general of the prime minister's office wanted another guy. I mean, are we for real? There's a war going on. I mean, I can tell you just firsthand, Scott, and this is just my personal experience, right? Things that I did that I, and I'm no, I'm not unique and I'm not looking to, for, for any appreciation, but like, I, I was involved in in bringing together the the group of American Israeli hostages. There's now ten of them, right? We were me and, and and a couple other friends. We we got up. We got together on Tuesday, three days after the war started. Each of us had heard of a different person. We said we're doing a press conference today. One guy got the Carlton Hotel in Tel Aviv, and they deserve a lot of credit. For, gave us a free room. I got a a, a company that um, gave us free satellite broadcasting go live is their name they deserve credit for doing that for free for giving giving us to that 
Then we got four families. They came, someone else got their, their pictures of their loved ones printed up. We had 50 media outlets there. It was broadcast live on Fox, CNN, ABC, NBC, you name it. And later that night was Biden's first speech where he said, we now have learned that there are American hostages. Did I do anything special? No, but we just worked. We acted. Should I, should should my, me and my friends have done that? No, it should have been done by the government. But I, I mean, that's just one tiny example. I've heard the I heard the other day of how the government has reached out to do a big media buy around the world. Hamas equals ISIS with photos and put this as on digital banners on websites and billboards. Costs maybe about ten million shekel, two and a half, three million dollars, but no one in the government wants to sign off on it. Something as simple as that, $3 million that the, the wealthy state of Israel can't pay for? We got to go schnorr money off of people? And by the way, here's another thing. All the all this, and, and by the way, incredible what has been happening with Jews around the world coming to give money and to donate and to contribute to Israel. And I've been, I've been on countless phone calls and Zooms and making connections and helping people. But does it make sense that people in, in America are spending millions of dollars so Israeli soldiers can get ceramic vests? Where is the defense? Where is the government? These are basic necessities for soldiers. What is going on here? So, so when I when I look at everything, and people say that because Yocheved Lifshitz, an eighty-five year old woman, dared to say that yes, they they gave me a doctor, they gave me a medic, they gave me my medicine, they gave me food, right? Of course, they gave her that because they want to keep her alive because they know that she's worth more alive than dead. We're going to pounce on her, as opposed to look at what is our government doing, which is sadly very little right this is there's a war going on and 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 i think that we we have to keep ourselves focused on what what really matters what's really important here well can you explain where the government dysfunction is coming meaning yes i am not a fan of this government i'll put that out there I also think, however, that in a time of war, you would think that some of these bureaucratic squabbles would simply go down when people recognize, as Bibi Netanyahu said last night, this is a fight for the existence of the state of Israel. This is existential. It's not a campaign. It's a war. Why is the government continuing to be ineffective? Part of it stems from the fact that you have incompetent people in certain jobs. You have the wrong people in those jobs. And when you have the wrong people in certain jobs, it's just not going to work. There is, I'll, I'll just give you one example because we were talking about the tweet and about Hasbara, PR, public diplomacy. Only this past July, August, did Netanyahu finally appoint someone to what's known as Marah Hasbara Lumi, the National Information Directorate. It's basically a director general level position in the prime minister's office, appointed by the Israeli government, who is responsible for all public diplomacy efforts in the country. Now, Netanyahu did not have anyone there for years. And then when he left office, Bennett appointed someone. That person didn't stay long because we know Bennett didn't stay long. And then Netanyahu's back, been back for eight, nine months, now appointed somebody. Seems like a really good guy, by the way. I don't know him personally. Seems like a good guy, but he is not, does not come with any media experience, does not know public diplomacy, right? I don't think he's ever done an interview with the foreign media. So when the war broke out, what did they do? Look at look what's happened there. And thank God we have these people who are willing to put everything aside and come right back in. Mark Regev is back in his job. Mark Re- Mark's amazing. Elon Levy, who was the international spokesperson for Herzog, he's fantastic. And I, you know, and and I I think Elon is doing an amazing job. Elon goes in and 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 puts aside his criticism of the government. And there's other people who have done that. And thank God we have people who are true patriots. But why wasn't this all set up before? Right? I mean, 
it, this is a shocker to us that when war breaks out, we need to get messaging right. The idea of spokespersons is doing a fantastic job, but they're the only ones who are really speaking. Where is the country? Why is there not clear messaging across the board? Where are the ministers, by the way, Scott? Have you heard anyone? Have you seen anyone out there? Is anyone interviewing? Is anyone talking to the Israeli public? We're three weeks into this war almost. I don't see anybody. I don't hear anybody. Well, can you explain that? Actually, that was my next question, because the ministers, as you say, have been silent. Bibi Netanyahu during COVID, for example, used to have nightly updates at the beginning. Yeah, he had to teach up. us how to blow our nose in our sleeve or something like that. Exactly. That's his job as prime minister. Now, when there's a war going on, yes, last night he had an address, but he's been, in my mind, strangely quiet to what do you attribute that silence? Meaning even if they can't get their act together, you would think the prime minister would want that airtime to project that leadership. That's what Bibi does, and he's not doing it. What's going on? I can't... Uh, look, the, the only explanation that I can come up with is that he, everybody is going underground because they don't want, they want to try to keep the responsibility off of them. And they want to try and create and, and, and pretend as if it's not, it's, it won't stick to them the day after, but it will, and it will be a stain on them. You know, you keep, you mentioned a few times in Netanyahu's speech last night, right? So Netanyahu gives up to give, the, give this dramatic speech, which again, really doesn't contain much of anything. Classic Netanyahu. But then people were all waiting with great anticipation. Maybe finally he's going to say those words, I am responsible. Like other people have already said, the defense minister, the chief of staff, the head of Shabbat. So he says the words, I am responsible, pauses. And people, uh, later you you read these articles, you know, these columns by, by pundits. They waited with abated breath to see what would come next. And he says, I'm responsible for the future of the state of Israel. Right. So he's responsible for the future, but not for what happened. And I'm thinking to myself, how could you guys be surprised? When has he ever taken responsibility? Sadly, we live in a country that has a culture of zero, zero accountability. The mere fact that two years ago, now two and a half years ago, almost 45 people were killed at Meron on Lagba Omer and not a single... The, the police chief is still in his job. The the, the security, the, inter, the police minister only got promoted now to become the speaker of the Knesset. The prime minister is still the prime minister. The fact that nobody paid anything is insane. So to think that now something's going to change, I mean, the, my surprise was that people were actually surprised. So Yaakov, it sounds like, and I certainly agree with this, a lot of the problems you're mentioning are endemic to the system. Just to take one example among the many that you mentioned, when you say that ministers are not qualified or various people who are appointed are not qualified, that's part of the system. Just to compare it for one moment to the United States, when you have cabinet secretaries, they're not inherently people who are indebted to the voters. They're people that are chosen by the president and confirmed by the Senate. But the hope is that they are somewhat qualified for the position, which in Israel is simply not part of the equation, as far as I understand. For example, if a president nominates somebody as, let's say, secretary of the treasury, Yes, of course, that person has to have views that broadly align with the president, but hopefully that person also has some reason to be specifically secretary of the treasury, either being an economist or someone with experience in that area, or at least knowledge of that area. In contrast, in Israel right now, what is broadly parallel is the minister of finance, and that's Batalos Motrich. His qualification was that his party got enough seats, and that's a big enough position that he's going to get it. In other words, his qualifications are literally besides the point, and that's a real problem. The question that I have for you is, do you think that the shock of what has happened 
will cause us to finally make long-needed changes to the political system? Or will that simply not happen because the people who can make those changes are the entrenched politicians who don't want those changes? I don't know. I, you know, part of me, I, I, I hope, I mean, listen, we don't know where this war is going. I think Israel has a unique opportunity from the beginning. I've, I've, I believed from when this happened and looking at the international legitimacy and support that we have today, we're, we're in a unique moment to maybe change once and for all the whole paradigm here in the Middle East, to no longer have to live with a sword up against our neck from the South, from the North, from the Iranians. Will we go all the way with this? I don't know. And there will be a price to pay. I'm not advocating for all out war on every possible front, but I think that we really have to, and 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 part of what makes me maybe a little confident is, is, is the, the delay that we do see. The fact that things are taking time shows consideration and thought and serious thought. But when it comes to the change that will be needed internally after this, sadly, you and I both know that we're very good at coming together in times of emergency, but we're also very good in bouncing back and going back to the old ways that were here before. And you're going to see the split again between the pro-BB camp and the anti-BB camp. And while people tell me all the time, there's no way he survives this, I say to them, just wait. He'll find a way. If there is a way, he'll find it. So for that, for there to be a real fundamental change, we all have to want it and fight for it and demand it. And if we don't and we continue to sit on the sidelines, then we only have ourselves to blame. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, I, I, again, I keep on thinking back to Mayron, but we allowed that to happen. We, the people, allowed these people to get away with it. And so why should this time be any different? It's only, it's up to us. It's up to the Israeli people to make that decision, that they want to fundamentally and substantively change the way our government functions, our electoral system, the, the accountability the appointment of ministers, the qualifications of people, it's up to us. And I, with that, unfortunately, I don't have great hope. I don't. The one reason I have for hope, Yaakov, and perhaps I'm being naive, is that I assumed for a long time that we allowed our political system to be almost degenerate because the IDF was on some level more important. And that's the real, I'm not going to say it's the power or not run by the military, but we're really confident in the most important thing, which is that the IDF will protect us. And given that security is the prime concern and assuming that the IDF is taking care of that, what happens within the government is almost the small story, the details within the much more important, larger rubric of security, which we assumed was fine. I think the confidence in the IDF has been severely shaken. And as a result of that, it could be that there will have to be a shakeup simply because the old pillars of the establishment are no longer considered as reliable as we thought they were, even beyond the political class. No, I, agree. I think, but I mean, what you're saying is is true, and that was shattered for Israelis the, the, these past few weeks. Was this idea of invincibility, and that you know this, something like this couldn't happen, and the in the army completely collapsing, and our intelligence agencies completely collapsing. But with that said, you know, uh, I'm a fellow at uh, the Jewish People Policy Institute now, and and JPPI did a did a poll, which was very interesting. It shows when you look at supporters of the coalition, who do they blame more, the army or the political class? Overwhelmingly, they blame the army. 
And when you ask members of the opposition, voters, sorry, of the opposition, who do they blame more, the political class or the security agencies, overwhelmingly the political class. So you still see to an extent people are still very much entrenched in that same political square that they were in before going into this. We have to really decide, I don't, and I don't, I don't know how to achieve this, right? I mean, I think what we're seeing now is beautiful and moving, this coming together, the unity, the, the civilian enlistment and, and you know, hitgaisut as we call it in Hebrew, of just people coming together to, to help one another, the arvut hadadit that we have is, is, is beautiful. I mean, you can't not be moved, but how will that extend the day after I don't know. And, and that's what we need. We need to figure out a way to, 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 to use this, to channel this energy in a positive direction to make fundamental changes also in the civilian aspect of life in our country. I'm hoping myself, Yaakov, that the shock of the situation, which is the biggest shock since 1973 and perhaps ever in Israel's history, might allow these feelings of unity and I hope you're right. this Arvut Hadadid to continue. I don't know, but that's my hope that it might cause a realignment based on that. Let me ask you, I know you don't have very much time and I appreciate your time. I want to ask you about a couple small points over here that might be big. Yesterday I saw that Sahi Hanegbi praised Qatar for its efforts in something. I'm not even sure what exactly he was praising, the mediation efforts perhaps for hostages. As you said, we don't really know what's going on. Some of this messaging is intentionally misleading. But what is that really about? Because I hear people in the punditry class saying Qatar is the worst. They try to have both ways. They try to have both America's power behind it, along with funding Hamas. And yet Sahih and Negbi praised Qatar, which was shocking to me. Could you explain what that means? The Qataris are a dangerous country, a dangerous government run by the Altani royal family. Um, they have a, a tradition, a history of playing both sides of every conflict. And this is just another classic example. They, they harbor Hamas leaders in Doha. They give millions and tens of millions of dollars to Hamas to fund their activities. And then when Hamas kidnaps people, they say, hold on, we'll help you get them back. <laughs> so it's like, I'll shoot you, but then I'll stitch up your wound. The problem is that until now, Israel has been an accomplice to this, right? We facilitated the transfer of that money. Remember, the suitcases of cash by the Qataris to the Hamas in Gaza. We allowed that to happen. We, The world was complicit in allowing Hamas, the Qatar to host the World Cup and, to, and to, to, to continue to harbor and give sanctuary to Hamas leaders. I, I wrote a piece the other day for Fox News on this where I said that Qatar needs to expel the Hamas leaders. And if they won't do it, the United States has a military base there. They should do it for them. They, they have a huge air force base with lots of special forces. Can you imagine, Scott, that after 9-11, and it was Joe Biden who said that this attack on October 7th was 50, the equivalent of 15 9-11s for Israel because of the numbers. That after 9-11, America would discover bin Laden living the life of luxury in Qatar or some other country, they wouldn't go in there within a second and blow that guy up or kill or capture? I mean, there would be no question. But here, we're falling again into this trap of playing this game with the Qataris. They're bad people. Now, what the Qataris care about is one thing and one thing only, their image and how they are perceived around the world. They spend tons and tons of money on buying up sports team. They own PSG in, in Paris, for example, Paris Saint-Germain. 
They 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 had the World Cup. They invest money in hedge funds and real estate. They want they put their money everywhere. They to give them a lot of leverage. The the what Sachi and Igbi did. I also understand though, because they care so much about their image. They probably said to him, if you don't come out with an official statement, because we're now getting slammed by other people, if you don't come out with an with this message that makes us look good, we're not going to help you. So I don't blame Hanegbi per se, because he, the, Israel does have to do everything it can to get back these hostages. But here's the thing. What we saw happen on October 7th has to be a wake-up call for Israel and for the entire world, that what we are facing is a battle between good and evil. That is what's at the base foundation of this. My heart goes out to every single family that has somebody being held in Gaza. It's terrible. But if we let them hold 220 hostages and then an entire country hostage, then we will lose once again. It is time for us to take and and show force and strength and no longer tolerate this garbage that people sell us of complicated no, it's no longer complicated. It's quite clear what needs to happen. Qatar needs to be held accountable, needs to be made to pay a price, and needs to do everything it can to release those hostages and stop the funding of Hamas and expel or capture Ismail Haniya and the other people who are the other Hamas leaders who are in Doha. Need to be stopped. Could you just let us know what would you define in this situation as a victory for Israel? I know what Israel has said destroy Hamas. And you've already pointed out, as did my guest, Dr. Matthew Levitt, about a week and a half ago, that that's not a thing you can do. You can't wipe out white supremacy. You can't wipe out Hamas. It doesn't mean anything. So what actually do you think would be a victory for Israel? Or what? maybe I'll say it like this. What's the minimum that would be considered a victory for Israel? I could say what I would like to see at the end, end, end result. I would ideally want to believe that my children and one day my grandchildren will be able to live here in relative peace and quiet. So what I would like to see is two generations of quiet. That's big adult. That's about 50 years. And if you think about it for a moment, while we had wars and operations and intifadas between the Yom Kippur War and now on a relative level, we had 50 years of good 50 years for the state of Israel. We only grew. We only prospered. We only flourished. We had major challenges. We lost lots of people. And we had a constant battle against terrorism. But these were 50 good years in in total. And that was because at the end, we had a decisive victory against Egypt and against Syria. The decisive victory here, in my view, would be a complete degrading of Hamas's military capabilities. So they might be left with some weapons. They might be left with some rockets. The capturing and killing of almost all their top leaders the same in Hezbollah if it, if the war needs to happen there. Devastation and destruction that will set them back years, if not decades. But then it will have to it will have to follow be followed up with tough political leadership that will always ensure that they can never rebuild their capabilities. Because if we again turn a blind eye, if we again go back to what I said before, to the complicated. And to the and, and and to fall into those traps that are being set for us, that no, I'll turn a blind eye because I have this interest and that interest, and I don't want to upset these people or that people. If we do that once again, we will have failed. We need to be strong. And I'm I'm no crazy right winger, Scott. You know, people who have read me over the years, I'm no, I, you know, I've been for years a long proponent of the two state solution. I've long believed, for example, that Israel needs to do more 
to, to build up the Palestinian economy in the West Bank, even in the absence of real Palestinian leadership. But at the same time, we have this opportunity to really reset the whole way we are perceived in this region and the way we operate and act here. And to do that, to survive, we're going to have to be real tough and real strong. We can we have to be very clear in what we're doing and how we're doing it and not fall for these complicated traps, complicated in, in, in quotation marks, that people are setting up for us. I think if we do it that way, we have a good chance of creating that those 50 years of, of quiet that I think we all would, would die for today, really. And people are dying for that today. Okay. Well, Yaakov Katz, this has been very informative, and I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.